when somebody's calling for a helicopter, not only are they most likely having one of the worst days of their lives, there is no other option. Like there is no other better way of, of getting themselves out of there. Like they've run out of options. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 62, and today we get to catch up with Chris and Bob from Snowmish County, just north of Seattle in the US, where they work their helicopter rescue organization. Some more on that coming up shortly. Here, uh, I guess in terms of a quick news update, the summer school holidays in the Southern Hemisphere has uh, finished up and the kids are back at school. So it's taken us about a, a month to get back into uh, our sort of morning and, and uh, weekly work routine around the kids. And you know, there's been a bunch of things happening, nothing too exciting, but every week ends up being uh, a little bit different. So example, the, the company I fly for here in Brisbane has just taken over the local tourist island uh, joy flight operation. So it's been interesting watching that and helping out with uh, standing up a, a new operation in terms of the, the background logistics for that. At the airfield here in Redcliffe, one of our boundary fences is uh, shared with a local high school. So on Monday, they had a, a visit from the Australian Army with a uh, Australian Army multi-role helicopter, or MRH. It's also known overseas, obviously, as the uh, NH-90 uh, model in Europe. The helicopter type has had some pretty you know, public issues here in Australia in terms of uh, flying ability and access to, to spare parts and uh, actually hours that are flying, but it seems to be improving. But the airframe itself is just, you know, it's pretty impressive when you're standing up close to it or looking inside. You know, I always seen it a couple of times now at air shows and at the local airfield, but it's always, yeah, it gives me that impression of a, like a Star Wars type spaceship feel when you're next to it and looking at the, the cockpit and the way it's designed and, the, and laid out. So it's very, very cool. And uh, especially cool that the crew on the day were Matt and Meg in the front, and I have to apologize, I didn't get to say uh, g'day to the air crewman uh, as he was busy supervising school kids. So you can imagine a school oval with a, a heap of kids uh, swinging off this helicopter and, and asking lots of questions. But it's a really small world though, because I'm pretty sure the first time I, I met Meg was back in 2001. Uh, and I think Meg was just finishing her instructor course. And I just turned up at the School of Army Aviation in Canberra uh, for my helicopter conversion. And then I flew with Matt on Hueys in 171 Squadron. I don't think I've told the story before, but it's, it's the only time I've ever had an auxiliary uh, fuel tank fail on me was when I was flying with Matt uh, in a flight in Indonesia in early 2005. So the setup for the story is that it was just after the, the huge Boxing Day tsunami that hit uh, Band Aceh, uh, which is the very northwestern tip of Indonesia, uh, the closest part of Indonesia to, uh, to India, and that was at the end of 2004. The Australian government had sent over three Hueys as part of the relief efforts. And I was on holiday in New Zealand when it, it first happened. So I was only on the, the second rotation that went across in February. So by the time I got there, the operating base was set up with you know, tents and duck boards on the ground over the mud uh, in town and the, in the operating area. You know, all the dead bodies had been removed and the worst of the, the initial damage had started to be, be cleaned up. But yeah, the first rotation guys who were, who were very first there had a, a pretty rough time of it, uh, seeing lots of stuff in their, in their living conditions. The effect of, of the tsunami, you know, seeing it from the from the air, even a month after when we were there, it was just like you made a, you know a giant had taken a ruler and essentially scraped the coastline about a, a kilometre wide uh, in terms of how far it came off the, off the coast, and just basically scraped the the topsoil, the trees, the houses everything down to, to yellow clay and then on the hillsides you would then have that basically again like a, just a, a massive scrape with nothing and just bare, bare earth and then the tree line would go where the waves didn't reach. So absolutely amazing just seeing that from the air um, laid out in front of you. So huge devastation on the ground and uh, again a big relief operation off the, the coast there was you know, multiple US Navy ships and a hospital ship. Uh, Australia had some ships there. And unfortunately, after we left a little bit later on, there was actually a, a sea, an Australian Sea King crashed uh, with uh, loss of life uh, there as well. So we'd actually finished operations and had to get back, we'll get the helicopters back to the city of Medan. 
in which is a to an Indonesian Air Force base. Uh, so the aircraft can actually be flown back out to Australia. And I've just eyeballed it on the map today. It's about you know 330 nautical mile uh, trip to the east along the, the coast, heading back towards Malaysia. So about a, just over a three hour flight, and not something that we could do with our internal fuel. Our Hueys were fitted with a, a soft fuel bladder uh, that's fitted in what we call the, the quad compartment, which is the the two seats down the side of the transmission. Normally for us, we'd put it on the, on the rear left. And this AUX tank was then plumbed into the fuel system and had an internal electric pump that we controlled from the cockpit that gave us you know, between an hour and an hour and a half range on top of the internal fuel. So on this day, we cleaned up all the aircraft ready for the, the quarantine and the customs inspection. Uh, and we'd left in formation three Hueys heading out. You know, what was a reasonably long flight for us across a rural Indonesia, you know, right away from the uh, the tourist tracks. We're talking tiny villages and, and rice paddies. Uh, and again, probably something where people outside of Indonesia just haven't been um, before. So basically back behind us, the maintainers and the support staff were pulling everything apart back at the, the main base and, and getting ready uh, to pack up and, and get their own lift out with the Air Force. So I was flying with Matt and we had to Matt had just got to the squadron uh, on Hueys after flying Kiowas for a few years. So he was you know, well senior to me, uh, but I was the aircraft captain just to having more time on type. And as number three in the formation, we were right down the back and I'd obviously you know, drawn up the maps and had a look at the route, uh, but really was just expecting to, to follow along and enjoy a nice easy flight across a foreign country while number one up in Lee did all the, the hard work. And that was going to come back and bite me. So with the, the auxiliary fuel system, there, there was essentially, I'm a bit fuzzy on the details because um, it was a while ago now, but essentially there's an upper fuel limit cutoff so that the external, sorry, the internal AUX tank wouldn't overflow uh, into the main tanks and basically overflow the main tanks while you were flying. So the end net result of that is that you had to fly for about 30 minutes before you could turn on the, the AUX tank and check that you had a positive flow into the main tanks. At about that point in the flight, the other two aircraft had checked out okay and we had started our fuel transfer, but we were getting nothing and the uh, the main fuel gauge wasn't going up at all. And this is the first time it's ever happened to me then and ever since. So it's just like a, a rock-solid system. So you kind of have this this moment of, you know, this can't be happening when you turn it on and there's, and there's no flow. So we did everything you'd expect us to do in that situation. You know, we checked switches multiple times. We pulled the circuit breakers out. We put them back in. Uh, we turned switches on and off again. Uh, but uh, nothing at the end of the day. So we had to turn back by ourselves and wave uh, goodbye to the other two ships as, as they kept going. Uh, and now we're basically in a situation where we're about 45 minutes away from our starting location in very rural Indonesia. You know, it's my first time in Southeast Asia. Uh, no one you know, speaks English. Our Indonesian language consists of, of smiling and waving. We're a, you know, a foreign national country army helicopter the relationship between you know, Australia and Indonesia was a, a bit frosty and distrustful at the time. And uh, our squadron buddies are getting uh, three miles away every every minute in one direction. And the engineers at our original base are, are all packing up and, and trying to make their flight out of the, uh, the original airport. So I was probably a little bit stressed and uh, having to head back and, and be in the middle of, of, of nowhere. Uh, especially, you know, pretty early on and not being a very worldly wise uh, traveler. But Matt was pretty cool though. Matt had done a heap of backpacking in Southeast Asia, so he wasn't uh, too phased or he didn't, didn't seem it. Anyway, we got back to the maintenance team on the radio and, and let them know they were coming, so they hung around for us, uh, landed, got repaired, regassed, and, and made the, the three hour trip along the coast uh, on our own. And arriving in a Medan was a, another story again. You know, it's, it's a, a really big city in that part of, well, it's probably the biggest city in that part of Indonesia. And um, there was a heap of haze and smoke. So as you're approaching into the, the outskirts of the, the town, uh, you know, basically the, the haze and the visibility was just uh, reducing as you get there. And if, again, if you look at the map, the, basically the houses uh, are right up on the boundary fence of this, of this uh, airfield. Um, military airfield in the middle of the of the city, so you don't see it until it suddenly appears out of the the haze and the uh, the houses until you're right on top. So another story there, and, and but again, Matt was a big help trying to understand the controller. And after taxiing around for a bit on the uh, the airfield, we eventually found the right place to to go and and park and uh, and shut down. And that was uh, the end of our, our trip. We flew out and uh, back to Australia. So yeah, it's memorable for me. And it was good to see Matt there again uh, this week. 
Virtual reality wise, again, if you listen to that last episode, you'll know that I'm I'm completely sold on this stuff. And again, a couple months on, I'm you know still think it's amazing that it just tricks your brain so much that you can put it on, and it feels like you really are in a real cockpit. So development since then, X Plane 11, which is probably one of the main software out there, have got a beta branch out at the moment, so you can grab it on Steam or just download the beta copy if you've got a paid copy of X Plane 11. That's got native virtual reality support baked into the program. So you no longer need to use a, a third-party add-on. You can just do it with the, the main X-Plane software. And again, the biggest change uh, for me is the fact that you don't need external controls anymore. Where before you had to actually have some kind of you know joystick or external uh, cycling collector that you plugged in by USB. And these are really expensive. You, know, you can pretty much pay $1,500, $2,000 upwards just for these um, external helicopter controls. Now what you do is you can just reach out with your virtual reality controllers and basically pick up the, the cyclic and the collective as you see them in the virtual cockpit and actually manipulate the controls that you see and fly it that way rather than actually having to have physical controls in the, in the real world next to your chair. So that's huge. You can basically sit there with a computer, virtual reality headset and reach out, pick up a cyclic, pick up a, the collective and, and take off. Now what it doesn't have is, is pedals. Uh, the pedals are just coordinated, so you can't do a hover turn. But obviously, as you're flying around and banking, it'll just keep that in balance. So you, if you were going to get too serious, you would need some kind of pedals uh, to plug in by a USB stick. But again, the experience is just amazing. If you think of flying a, you know, an S70 through the Canadian uh, hills at the bottom, you know, the creek lines at the bottom of these massive hills, and banking and turning uh, around, it's, it's a lot of fun. The Bell 407 model by Dreamfoil. Uh, will be updated shortly and it'll have that same option where you actually use the, the controls inside the cockpit just using the virtual reality uh, black default controllers that, that come with it and not need actual joysticks or, or helicopter controls. So yeah, check that out. Um, I'll have to take you with stuff changes there. In terms of today though, Chris Moriarty uh, reached out to me a while back and got me interested in their helicopter rescue group, which is in the US Northwest. It's a, a slightly different setup to what I'm used to, where it's a a mix of full-time staff and then a, a pool of volunteer uh, pilots, aircrew technicians, so the guys who are working in the back of the helicopter, uh, paramedics who are then on a on-call roster uh, and then have their normal day jobs. The group operate a, a UH-1 and an MD-500 with a, a focus on mountain rescue, but their operations can see them call out anything from you know, missing persons, river rescue, firefighting, law enforcement support and MBG operations. From the photos I've seen and, and looking on Google Earth, their corner of the world must be amazing to fly in. You know, one side on the on the western side, you've got the ocean and all the waterways, and then it goes up into the hills. And there's a couple of volcanic peaks. There's a glacier, you know, valleys up there in the hills, and you've got uh, Seattle and the and the sea just to the south. So it looks like an awesome place for for hiking and bushwalking, which again plays into a lot of the types of the you know the rescue callouts that they get. And you don't have to go too far from that area before you start getting into some relatively remote areas up in the hills. Chris has been with the Sonomish County Helicopter Rescue Team for the last few years. And also on the call today, we have Bill Kristoff, who was their chief pilot. Let's jump across as Chris and Bill tell us a little bit more about their roles at the organisation. I'm Bill Quistorf. I'm a deputy with the Sheriff's Office. I'm the chief pilot also for Snohomish County Sheriff's Office and in charge of the air support unit here uh, out at Search and Rescue. And uh, my name is Chris Moriarty and I'm one of the uh, helicopter rescue technicians on the team. And guys, could you basically just describe where the base is located and sort of the geography around there where you guys get to, to operating? Sure. Yeah. Our, uh, our base is called Taylor's Landing and it's located in Snohomish County, uh, which is the first county north of Seattle, Washington. Uh, Seattle's in King County. Snohomish County is the second uh, most populous county in Washington and uh, covers a range of terrain from the ocean all the way up to the summit of Glacier Peak, which is around 9,000-ish feet. And so, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of wilderness and wild areas, uh, a lot of tall timber, and quite various different uh, landforms and, and places where people get themselves into trouble. So trails and climbers and, and rivers and all sorts of stuff. So our area of um, 
responsibility covers Snohomish County, but we're all primarily, uh, but we're also uh, ready and able to respond and assist other counties as needed. And Chris, we've spoken before, but you know, I said I jumped on Google Earth and had a look around, and I mean that that top north, uh, you know, northwestern corner of the U.S. It just looks like an absolute mecca for anyone who's into outdoor things, whether it's you know on the water or kayaking or you know, as you said, the the climbing. Because some of your some of your mountains are, have got snow all year round. Yeah, definitely. We have uh, you know glaciated peaks. Most of the glaciers in the lower forty eight are found in our state, um, and some of those for sure are found in our county. And, and you're right, everything from, from kayaking to mountain biking, climbing, base jumpers, uh, a little bit of anything, any, any sort of outdoor sport typically gets done here and with associated injuries and folks getting lost as well. So uh, that's kind of where we come in. And Bill and Chris, is that home ground for you guys? Did you grow up in that area? Uh, myself, no. I, I grew up in Wisconsin in the Midwest, no mountains, lots of snow. I entered the military right out of high school, so did a full career in the military as a pilot. I was on the high altitude rescue team up in Alaska for a few years, so I got some good training up there, good experience at high altitude working on glaciers. Uh, and then once I retired here in in Selmish County, uh, that's when I started uh, at first volunteering as a pilot out here in search and rescue, and then later, uh, very soon after that, I was hired on as a chief pilot, and I've been doing that for 18 years. So, and kind of most of the, Was most of the Army time in Hueys? Yes, I was an instructor in Hueys. Uh, most of my unit time was in Chinook helicopters, cargo helicopters, but um, really loved the Huey, and I was uh, glad to come here, and we've got a 1970 Army surplus Huey that's been upgraded, so um, it's nice, nice to fly it uh, again. But he, this one is quite a bit different than the military. Yeah, well, we might go through the upgrades of it later on because it's, you know, it's a very nice machine. Uh, and, and again, there's videos of you doing a, a walk around on YouTube and things like that. But it's, it's definitely well fitted out. But it must be, you know, it must be so comfortable for you, like pulling on an old glove, to jump in that machine and go flying. It is, and it's great because uh, you know we've got couple junior pilots with us and I'm able to give them instruction. You know, I started out as a Huey mechanic and door gunner and worked in uh, direct support, general support maintenance. So I've taken them apart, put them back together. And uh, it's nice to be able to pass knowledge on to uh, younger generation. I'll let Chris uh, tell you about his background. Yeah, go for it, Chris. Yeah, so I'm originally, I'm not originally from, from the Northwest either. I, I grew up in Connecticut um, and then kind of made my way west uh, uh, via Colorado for a few years um, where I kind of developed my love of mountains and everything outdoors, really kind of learned the craft of mountaineering and backcountry travel, and then uh, moved to the Northwest Seattle area in 2010, um, and have been up here since then, you know, exploring and then I, uh, I was uh, applied and joined the team uh, in 2013, I believe. Um, so I'm still somewhat new to the team, but at this point, I've gotten the chance to go out on quite a few missions. So did you have any helicopter experience before? Like, had you flown them or was it just purely starting from scratch? No, I had seen plenty of helicopters, <laughs> but I had uh, only experience in one prior to, to being on this team was uh, I had done a 30-day mountaineering uh, expedition up in the Waddington Range of Canada, and we got helicoptered in by uh, Mike King, White Saddle Air, uh, runs a wonderful operation up there. And that was my first time in a helicopter, and uh, I got to sit up front, and I was just blown away flying it over all those glaciers. And they dropped us off, and, and over the course of 30 days, we climbed some mountains and hiked our way back out, and it was just astounding to me that you know, a 20 minute helicopter ride in took us, you know, several weeks to then hike back out. So that was my only experience prior to this. So uh, it's definitely a learning curve coming onto the team uh, and learning how to, how to, how to be safe and how to operate around uh, a helicopter for sure. Yeah, in terms of the, the team that surrounds you guys, can you just describe that a little bit in terms of the makeup of a full-time uh, volunteer uh, and the sort of specialties that you've actually got in the team with you? We're uh, pretty unique. I think in the States here, we've got a composite team. 
Uh, there's about 36 members. Four of the members are deputies, myself uh, being one. I'm the only full-time pilot. I've got another part-time deputy pilot who gets paid. So we have two PICs, two co-pilots who are volunteers. We always fly with two pilots up front. Our crew chief in the back who operates the hoist, that's a mix also of deputies and volunteers. And then uh, our rescuers, our rescue techs are all from Everett Mountain Rescue, so they have extensive mountaineering experience. And our flight medics are all full-time paramedics somewhere in the county, uh, and they're sponsored by a certain Fire District 26 who covers them for uh, in case they get injured on the job. But they're all full-time paramedics, and we also have a flight physician uh, in charge of the medics who's a full-time ER doc who's qualified to, to go with us if need be, and he supervises the medical aspect of the job. So it's a real mix and very professional. We train um, train twice a week. Uh, the, the volunteers are all very highly motivated, very professional in what they do, and I couldn't ask for uh, you know a better team. We we hand select people uh, throughout search and rescue through the fire service and through Everett Mountain Rescue, and we pick the cream of the crop to be on the team, and it, it really shows. How many people total? I can't remember if you, if you said that before in the the entire sort of. You know, team database? Yeah, it's about 36 total. Um, and then we also have a contingent of uh, ground support team. They're all volunteers, and they help us with LZ management in case we go somewhere. We have multiple aircraft operating. So, so they come in very handy. It makes things uh, safe on the ground for managing civilians if there's a large group or we've got multiple aircraft operating. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not a small operation. And again, just looking from the, the satellite pictures, the, the actual base there, you know, you've got a couple of hangars, but it looks like you've got a, like a rappel tower set up with a, again, hard to tell from the pictures, but it looks like you've got a, you know, a chopped up Huey or something on top of a, a tower uh, for training there. So in terms of the operating base, what, what do you have there on the ground? Yeah, that's exactly it. That's, that's one of our uh, kind of key pieces of equipment. It, it is an old Huey fuselage um, that's actually mocked up to directly correlate to our actual flying Huey um, with a working hoist and everything on it. So we use the tower quite a bit, particularly for newer members in order to just get oriented with the flow of a rescue operation, newer crew chiefs, uh, newer techs and medics, um, just to get used to, you know, being inserted and extracted via a hoist um, and getting used to working in the, uh, the, the cramped quarters inside of the Huey. Other, op- other uh, the base of operations here also serves greater search and rescue community. So we have a lot of ground team resources here for the other search and rescue teams, everything from uh, hovercrafts to gear trucks. You know, we have a, a command module that's here. So, so quite a few other resources that are, that are based out of here. Everett Mountain Rescue is based out of here as well. Um, so their two vehicles are based here as well as uh, some of the other units. We're well located on kind of the intersection of two major highways that allows us to respond quickly to the base in order to get gear and then head out for, for our respective mission. So, yeah, that, that basically sums up what we've got here on, on base. Do you push the argument that you need to be uh, cross-trained on the hovercraft as well just for, for, uh, for safety reasons? Not yet, actually. I have yet I have yet to take a ride on that, but we do have several rescue technicians who also volunteer with our Swiftwater rescue team. Um, we've got a whole bunch of rivers nearby that are really popular with uh, the more water-oriented folks, uh, so kayakers and rafters and that sort. So they're, the the Swiftwater rescue team is also very very high caliber, and they respond to quite a few missions per year as well. In the uh, yeah, I'd be pushing to have a go on the hovercraft if I was uh, based there and uh, make the most of the uh, the assets. For sure, I haven't, I haven't ridden in them. They look a little tippy to me, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I suppose once you have them, they're pretty fun. All right, if we step back now, so history. So I've got off the website there. It was um, started in 1977, which I'm guessing you know predates you guys a little bit. Uh, what was the what was the original setup? How did they get a hands on a helicopter and and uh, and get it started from scratch? Well, there was a star sergeant out here, star supervisor named John Taylor, who this search and rescue base is named after, Taylor's Landing. 
he was quite the scrounger, and he was an ex-military uh, supply guy who went out and acquired some military surplus helicopters. So they started out with a couple of Bell 47s, um, the old MASH style with the litter on the side, and they were doing rescues back then with the Bell 47. Then he acquired some uh, 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 Huey, some UH-1B models, Bravo models, and they were flying those in the mountains for a while, and then eventually they got some uh, D, Delta, and, and H hotel model Hueys, and that's what we've got now. We've got a 1970 UH-1H uh, with a, a 703 engine, so we've got extra power in there. Uh, I've modified it with a Bell 212 tail rotor system, and uh, we've got the boundary layer research uh, fast spin and strikes on it, and b by the way, boundary layer is based right here in Everett, Washington, and Snohomish County. So uh, they've been very um, uh, forthcoming in getting us some equipment, uh, some of their parts that uh, we put on our aircraft. And with that uh, tail rotor system, that 212 tail rotor system and the strakes, I have never run out of left pedal up there at the mountains once I've adjusted the gross weight of the aircraft, which is pretty important, you know, when we're operating at 8,000, 9,000 feet. Uh, in a single-engine uh, aircraft um, and being able to have full tail rotor authority at high altitude. Well, yeah, before we were listing off the, the people and the crew, I was sort of adding it up. So some of those missions, you're, you're lifting off fairly heavy. Right. Uh, we fly with a crew of five minimum, and then we've got all our rescue gear. We do have, you know, contingency equipment because sometimes we don't know what we're going to use, so we bring a lot of things with us. Once we get out on scene, and it's usually a good 30-minute 30, 30 flight out, we're burning fuel. If I do my hover check, uh, my OG check and controllability, and if I find myself close to a, the pedal stop uh, while I'm doing that OG check, I'll go ahead and land and offload some equipment, uh, burn a little more fuel, and then go back up. So uh, once I do that, um, I've been good to go. You know, we don't operate above 9,000 feet. So uh, anything above there, I'd call in a National Guard or the Navy or somebody with a with a UH-60 to come in a little more power than I've got to do a rescue. Bill, can you just talk through how you do your OG hover check? Like, again, for someone coming to tell you scratch at it, how would you, or how do you sort of train your other pilots to, to do that check? Well, one thing we're, we emphasize is before we go into the mountain scene, uh, for the rescue, we come in and if we're operating uh, at, at altitude, at, at pretty much any altitude, uh, before we go in and attempt to do a hoist rescue or to land or, or do a low hover operation, uh, we'll, we'll stay away from the mountain at the altitude we think we're going to be operating at. You know, we can go ahead and fly around and locate the subjects as long as we're keeping our airspeed up and say we located them at 7,500 feet. Uh, we'll just continue flying, uh, fly away from the mountain, stop uh, at a full hover at 7,500 feet and check winds and check uh, our power, make sure that we've got available power. You know, in the Huey, our limitation uh, in this one is the transmission. So we've got 50 pounds of torque available almost continuously because we've got that bigger engine at 703. So we'll do uh, a power check, OG check, uh, look at our power, uh, see what our torque is doing. You know, if it's 48 or less, uh, we, sh we should be good to go. If it starts getting uh, at, you know, at 48 and 49, you're just getting a little too close to the, your limit. And as you come in, you put a little more left pedal in, you may hit that 50 pound limit. We don't want to over torque. So when it gets that close, anything uh, 48 or above, I want to take some weight off. So as long as I'm below 48 and I, I feel like I've got enough pedal uh, and I can judge what the winds are, then I'll go in slowly and start uh, to approach an OG altitude uh, on the scene to conduct the hoist insertion. At any time during that uh, approach, if I feel like it's unsafe or I'm running out of pedal, uh, I can abort, but conducting that OG check away from the mountain, uh, if I've got pedal out there and I've got the power uh, and extra power available, a little safety margin, I've never had any issue after I've adjusted the weight. You know, if, if I've come near the pedal, 
stopped and um, didn't feel comfortable and then landed, offloaded gear, burned some fuel, came back up. Uh, I've always been successful at completing the operation. Okay, no, that's awesome. Thank you for yeah. It's just always interesting to to hear how other people you know do their their limit checks and, and do their operations. In terms of the other roll equipment on board, so it, it, I think it's got Fleur. Uh, when you say you you know you take off with a whole range of stuff on board because you're not sure what you're going to have at the other end, what do you have on board? So you've got you know litter kits. Um, do you take uh, you know the whole medical packs in terms of you know defibrillators and things like that? Yeah, our standard um, our standard pack out the way it's configured for essentially all missions ready to go is we have our uh, we have a rescue side and then a medical side of things. The rescue side is a gear bag uh, that essentially has a, a cascade litter that can break in half, um, and we store it in half to save space. Uh, we have, along with that, uh, hypothermia cover, a patient mover. Um, we have a splint kit uh, and Bowman bag to cover the litter uh, and assist with voice connections. So that's all kind of wrapped up in one gear bag along with a tagline to manage uh, to manage spin and also, in certain cases, a clip to the hook to get back to the rescuer on the ground. Uh, so that's kind of our standard loadout gear bag. In addition to that, we have both BLS and ALS medical kits, so basic life support, EMT level, uh, so airway, medical gear, hemorrhage control, and vital sign um, you know, devices like stethoscopes and pulse oximeters and whatnot. At the ALS level, we have essentially the medical capabilities of an ambulance for the most part. <laughs> um, we are able to provide oxygen. We uh, recently intubated a patient. So we have intubation capability. We have, you know, all, all manner and range of ALS medications. Um, I'm not as well versed in those because I am not uh, a paramedic. I'm just an EMT on the tech side of things. Um, so I'm, I tend to be assisting the medic uh, rather than than doing direct medical um, work. In addition to that, we carry three main extraction devices. We have obviously the litter, but we have a, what we call the rescue vest or more affectionately the screamer suit. Um, which is uh, used for more ambulatory patients. Uh, and then we also have the strop, um, which is uh, kind of the horse collar uh, that you can use for, for people in a particularly time-sensitive environment or hazardous environment where the rescuer cannot come off the hook, then, then you're able to rescue them using the strop. And it's a two-person two -person rescue then. Yep, sure. And, and Chris, as a technician, will you be the guy who actually goes down on the wire? Yeah, typically the order of operations is we'll get on scene once we, uh, you know, see what the mission is and where, where people are located and what the nature of, of the rescue might be. The rescue tech tends to go down first. If it's a simple medical issue or just a stranded hiker, usually can be just managed by the tech. Uh, and then we, you know, haul, the, haul that person back up. The tech goes up after that. If it's something more serious, I'll ask to have the medic come down. Um, and then subsequent to that, any gear that we might need, including oxygen or, you know, an AED, a defibrillator, uh, et cetera. Um, and then we use that gear together. And then the typical order of extraction would then be that the medic goes up first, patient goes up second, and the tech goes up last, assuming that there is time in the weather window to get the tech out. Uh, <laughs> if not, the tech is and then recovered later. Fair enough. Okay. And well, do you just have a radio with you? So when you go down the wire, you can then communicate back? Or how do you do the, the comms set up? Yeah, that's a good question. So we have uh, we have an 800 megahertz radio that we all use uh, that also transmits the HF. We will do a comms check in the door before getting lowered down to make sure that anybody going down has comms with the ship before uh, before leaving it we can address any of those calm issues before we're actually on the ground and away. And then, yeah, we'll have, we operate on a short range frequency to minimize getting, getting walked on by other signals and to ease communication between ground teams and, and uh, Snowhawk 10 helicopter. And Bill, you set up for NVG operations? We are. I was uh, an NVG um, instructor in the military for a number of years. So when I came here, um, 
the agency was not operating with NVGs. Uh, actually, no one in the state was operating as far as um, local law enforcement agencies. So I introduced them to our pilots and neighboring pilots. And I've also been uh, certified by the FAA to conduct NVG uh, initial training and pilot proficiency training. And so I do that throughout the state for new pilots. Uh, I'll do their training and their initial certification. And we really only do MVG ops if it's life or death or loss, potential loss of limb or loss of eyesight. We aren't, we aren't going to go in the mountains at night for you know a, a sprained ankle or someone that, someone that uh, has some minor injury. So it has to be pretty significant for us to go out there. We do train on a regular basis, but to let you know, here in the Northwest, we probably have some of the worst weather in the winter uh, in the country. It's typically rainy, foggy, low clouds. Uh, we cancel a lot of our training flights because of the weather, but we do manage you know, to stay proficient and we make sure that uh, all our crews are trained up uh, before we go do a mission at night. And in your SOPs, do you have like a minimum you know, illumination level? Uh, as long as we have uh, some illumination, you know, on a clear night, uh, if there is no moon and we've got a full starlight, our goggles are sufficient uh, within a degree uh, to operate in the mountains. So it's all based on, um, on what's actually on the scene. I've been out there with a, with a good moon and uh, just some scattered layers, and I've, I've flown in the mountains, got under the uh, cloud deck and had the goggles start scintillating or, you know, working hard. And I wasn't able to continue even on uh, a yeah, good sure. um, moonlight. So it really depends on where we're going. And another thing in the summer, uh, there's big fires on the other side. We'll get smoke over here, which is not very conducive to flying MBGs, uh, having that low visibility at night. But, you know, we just have to go out and make sure we've got the visibility to conduct the mission. And if we don't, then we'll abort it. That's challenging stuff. And what about heading the other way? We're heading west over the water. Do you guys get you know many call outs for the maritime side of things? No, we're aircraft are not equipped with floats. We do not have a saltwater uh, maintenance preventative program, and we do do not have rescue swimmers. So Coast Guard Port Angeles is uh, just uh, twenty minutes away uh, via flight, and any saltwater operations, they're first on deck. And then the Navy, they're about uh, 30 minutes away um, flight time, and they're second up on deck for any any water off. Yeah, for sure. And in terms of call-out, like there on a, on a typical weekday, do you have people there at the base ready to go, or is it more of an activation thing where you have to call people in before you have to before you can launch off? No, I'm, I'm usually the only one out here um, as far as the crew and – Everyone else is signed up for duty days. So we have a, a one-hour response time is typically what we call in. And it really, it's, uh, if everybody gets in here, we can get in, in the air in about 45 minutes after the call. So who's ever on duty that day, they just have to be within a 20-minute response time of the hangar here. And that, that's worked well for us. Yeah. Now, helicopter operation is uh, particularly uh, cheap to run. So what's the cost breakdown? Because obviously, you know, some of you, as you said, you're, you're full-time and you get a salary, uh, I guess, from the you know, sheriff's department, uh, if that's how it works. But in terms of the operating costs and everyone else, there's obviously, you know, some volunteer time there. But how does the, how, how do you get funding? Well, look, the county funds us annually. It's, it, we don't have a very significant budget, so I really have to manage the flight hours and the budget uh, annually. I, I program about 300 hours total every year for training and missions. Uh, and so far, you know, we've been able to maintain that, uh, the budget that we're given. If there's some big high dollar items, like an engine overhaul or something coming up, I project that out as far as I can. And I let the county know that I've got this big expense coming up and I need it funded. So, so far that's worked very well. It'd be nice to, you know, get more funding and, and fly more missions and fly more training hours. But uh, I think we've been managing it and doing it safely, flying enough to keep everybody proficient. Uh, the volunteers do quite a bit. They do their, um, 
their fundraising through donations. I'll let Chris ad address that. Yeah, so we we operate a, I, mean, I think you might have seen our website, but we operate uh, a website, helicopterrescue.org, uh, that both tells a little bit about the team, but also um, you know, we, we solicit donations through fundraisers. And we've got some, you know, t-shirts, bumper stickers, commemorative books, all sorts of uh, different different items that we've gotten donated to us that we're able to then uh, turn around and use to help fund the program. A few years back, we did a, uh, a pretty massive fundraising campaign, and we're able to raise a, a fairly substantial amount of money all through all through volunteer hours and volunteer um, uh, donations and whatnot. So that was extremely extremely successful. Um, so we we try to support support the program as much as we can, not just through our hours, but also through um, trying to get get donations for it as well. And again, on the website, it talks about the fact that as a volunteer, you often got to actually purchase your own gear uh, to bring along with you. Yeah, that's right. So we we have a lot of team gear, but it's still supplemented with personal gear. Um, like some of our weather layers are, are personally purchased. Some of our you know personal climbing gear and 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 the like uh, is personally purchased as well. You know, many members of the team have also sought out extra training uh, on their own, on their own dime, uh, whether that is uh, rigging or or other other you know different types of rescue techniques. But but all that being said, you know, if somebody were to were to show up and not want to do that, they can they can certainly be very well trained and equipped through through the team as well. For other organizations which need that sort of fundraising support as well, do you have any top tips? Like what was the most successful thing that you guys did for fundraising? That's a good question. I think I think it was just a, a lot of planning and accessing the right database of likely donors uh, is, is really key. Maintaining really good relations and then putting being willing to put money in in order to, to, to get money out uh, the other side of things. So, so putting on a fundraiser can actually cost some money um, and, and being willing to, to put some of that outlay out there in order to do it right and make sure that your sponsors are on board. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's a pretty, it was a pretty easy campaign for us. It's pretty easy for folks to get behind. Uh, you know, our tagline was support the last resort uh, and the idea that, you know, when, when somebody's calling for a helicopter, not only are they most likely having one of the worst days of their lives, there is no other option. Like there is no other better uh, way of, of getting themselves out of there. Like they've run out of options and, and calling for a rescue is truly the last resort. And I think that message and, and our story, our team, what we do, it's really easy for folks to get behind that and support it. It's not you know, it's not in any way controversial or, or something that, um, you know, you, you can't get behind. So, so I think that that helped our message and, and being able to tell your story really helps. Oh, very cool. And again, you know, that's why we try to do this today as well is capture a bit of the story for, for folks. I was going to say for, um, which I've just lost my train of thought, actually, Bill, you mentioned the, the fires there before and the smoke coming through. Now you guys are obviously geared up for firefighting as well. Is that something you do a lot of, or again, is that a, there's quite a few agencies get involved before you guys get involved in the in the firefighting. Firefighting, we're pretty limited on what we'll do. We don't cross the mountains where the big fires are on over on the east side. Uh, every just about every year, there's some major fires over there. So that's not our primary mission. Our primary mission is rescue, and we just have the one rescue ship. So what we do is uh, when the big fires occur, is we're on standby over here in case they need a rescue. We've got uh, you know various forms of rescue tools we can use. We have a couple of water buckets here for dropping water, and every spring I take the pilots out and we conduct some refresher training. Every year we get uh, two to three calls locally within our county or adjacent counties for fires, and we'll only respond if there are, are homes or structures threatened by the fire. So if they have a grass fire somewhere, we're we're not going to dump water on it, but if some homes are threatened. Yeah, we'll we'll go in, and then the challenge is finding a water source nearby that we don't have to fly a great deal. But um, yeah, we're we practice, we train, and then we usually um, get called out two to three times a year. Okay, we spent most of the time talking about the Huey, but do you still have a, a 500 there as well? Yes, we have a very unique uh, 
uh, Hughes 500P Papa model, which no one will know what that is because it's the only one flying. It's one of only a handful that were, were built by the, the military. So this aircraft started out as a military OH-6A um, back in the, 60, in the late 60s. The Army modified a few of these, um, and they called them an NOH-6P, or um, the P was for predator. And they modified the, the tail boom on it to make it extra quiet. They added uh, two extra tail rotors, so it has four tail rotors, added an extra main rotor, so it's got five main rotor blades. And the thing is, actually, even without the special exhaust on it that's no longer on it any longer, uh, it is still really quiet. You don't hear it until, you know, it's just about over the top of you. So it's great for urban research missions. We never get any noise complaints with it. If you look at uh, Smithsonian Air and Space Online, their magazine some years ago published a story about Air America operations over in uh, Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, and this aircraft flew, uh, we don't know if it actually flew on one of the missions, but it was built for that mission, and the Air, Air America group flew it. Uh, later, it was uh, assigned to the CAV unit over in Vietnam, and it was shot down over there. It crashed once on takeoff, and um, it's a tough little bird, so it's got extensive history. It's great for searching, but, you know, really, it's at this point, it belongs in a museum with its history. It's, uh, it's good. A couple of in, a couple of episodes ago, we had uh, Lawton Charles on, who was a historian, and he actually yeah he spoke about you know obviously maybe not that particular machine, but the that uh, that model that they they modified for the the sort of semi CIA missions in, in Vietnam. So there's a little bit of a history sort of floating around about uh, those sort of changes. But okay, so how I don't know does it get tasked on you know typical local uh, police operations, or is it really just there for you guys as a, as a rescue organization for sort of searches and command and control? Yeah, it, it, we get called out. Um, we used to do regular patrol, nightly patrol operations with it in the county here uh, back in 2004 to 2008. And then um, with the recession, our budget was cut. And so our, our uh, patrol ops budget was cut. I had about a significant more money to work with back then. So we eliminated the patrol. We still respond if there's some uh, issue that uh, SWAT is dealing with or some other law enforcement active shooter, we, we will respond. So it's used for um, law enforcement, and then we use it uh, quite a bit for searching. It's great in the summer. We'll take the doors off. It's a great platform to search during the day to look between the tall timber for lost uh, hikers. And at night, uh, with NVGs on, I've spotted more people with NVGs in that uh, in that 500 than I have with a FLIR because we have such thick vegetation here, tall timber. FLIR really is not effective in, in the tall timber if you're looking for somebody in, out in the backcountry. Chris, do you get to do anything with a 500? Uh, once in a while, yeah. Uh, depending on the mission, I think I've been on uh, a couple of searches um, for, uh, uh, for folks that had gone missing, uh, in the river. So we were searching the river in it. Yeah, it, it's a, it's a, it's a really great ship. It's, it's a lot, of, it's a lot of fun to fly in. And I think that, yeah, I agree. It, it's great. It's great to search and it's, um, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a great platform. Chris, is there a particular you know, mission that sort of stands out that you, is the most memorable for you or the one that you feel sort of proudest about? Yeah, that's uh yeah, for sure. I think that uh it was one that happened last year. It was on the day of the eclipse. And so uh I was on duty that day. It seemed like a good duty day to take, you know, maybe something'll happen on the day of an eclipse and, and sure enough it did. There was a mission at uh Wallace Falls State Park, which is a state park nearby, uh has a pretty good sized waterfall in it, flows through some some little canyons and you know, popular popular tourist spot to hike to and take pictures of the falls, common rescue area for people, you know, everything from getting lost to, you know, going over the railing, falling into the water, going over the falls. Uh, people seem to get themselves in, in a whole bunch of different pickles there. Um, in recent years, it's become more popular with canyoneers, particularly wet canyoneers that, um, you know, repel and abseil their way down 
through the canyon and next to and in the water column. And on this particular rescue, one of a group of people who were canyoneering took a pretty serious fall. The information that we got is that they had taken, you know, a, a big fall, um, and that was kind of all we knew. And so we flew the mission, got out there, took a little bit to find exactly where they were. Um, it was a it was a really tight insertion. Uh, it was particularly steep terrain with tall trees. Uh, right next to the waterfall, kind of a narrow ledge, pretty exposed. And we knew that the person was pretty, pretty sick and injured. And so it took, took quite a bit to get positioned just right so that we could get inserted. And then it was, you know, up and down. We, were, we weren't able to get right next to the, to the patient. So we had to move around quite a bit to get up to them and then back down to get the gear and move the gear. You know, the patient was patient was pretty sick at one point, started to, it seemed like, deteriorate. So we had to call the helicopter back to deliver oxygen for us. And so we were able to get them on oxygen and then extract them. And the uh, it was a pretty timely extraction right at sunset. The condition of the patient was such that we felt that an expedited transport to the local level one trauma center was was warranted, and so we handed the patient off to another aeromedical uh, helicopter transport, leaving me behind in the process. Uh, And then they they came back to pick me up out, and we were able to complete the mission basically just as dusk was falling. And it was a, you know, the patient had a a successful outcome, but I think it was a really fine example of a a team working all together to achieve a, a really kind of time sensitive and yet, you know, sick patient getting, getting to the care that they needed. Uh, so it worked out, it worked out really well. So Chris, a couple of questions on that then. So that was all up and down on the wire. You couldn't actually get the helicopter on the ground. No, we were, it was all hoist. Uh, so it was probably, uh, probably close to 200 foot hoist. Um, and it was, yeah, it was just into, into steep, but ledgy terrain. So once you were on it, you were able to kind of move around as long as you were edge aware of the, you know, the slip and fall potential, you were able to move around relatively unencumbered um, as long as you were paying attention. And then the place where the patient was uh, in particular was a really narrow, you know, kind of ledge. It wasn't exposed, but it was just narrow and sloping. Um, So it was really kind of tight quarters to get them uh, packaged up into the litter. It It was pretty tight quarters. So all of our training paid off. It was exactly how we how we practice, uh, and uh, yeah, it, it was uh, it was a really highly successful outcome. And then the transfer to the other helicopter was that back at at your base, or did you meet them somewhere else? That I can't answer because I wasn't on the helicopter <laughs> yeah, at that up, time. Hill. I believe it, I believe it was just nearby in a either a local soccer field or uh, you know a large open grass area. It was it was not too far away, and we were able to call that other helicopter in as we were preparing the subject for extraction from their location. So it was kind of just, you know, perfect timing that they were there ready and waiting when, when we were able to deliver the, the patient to them. Oh, that's, that's very cool. Chris, well done. Uh, Bill, on your side for the, for the front seaters, you know, I'm guessing the other pilots operating with you there are, are not, you know, junior pilots in terms of experience. Do you have a, you know, a sort of a, a target that you're looking for when you're, when you're interviewing new pilots? Well, uh, the, the two that we have on board right now, actually there's a third one who's in training, um, just got his pilot certificate, but they all started with search and rescue. The two junior pilots we have now, they, they started very young as teenagers. I got here in about uh, the year 2000, and so uh, the one the once our member had left the organization and was working as a fire chief in, nearby, and the other uh, person, Jennifer, she worked her way up as a teenager in the Explorers and became a, a rescuer, a tech rescuer with, with uh, HRT. And I talked to her, and she had applied at one time for the Coast Guard as a pilot and didn't get accepted. And I talked to a couple people, and I said, hey, think about getting your pilot's license. And she went out, she's a hard charger, and went out there and did it and came back. And I started working with her. So uh, to answer your question, one is uh, what kind of star experience does somebody have? You know, somebody that has been in the organization is committed. 
both of these junior pilots are very committed. Uh, they both have become very good pilots, even though they're flying as co-pilots on a mission for myself and Steve, the other PIC. At this point, when we're doing missions, we let them pretty much fly the entire mission. There's very few times, usually it's uh, during an MDG mission that I'll actually fly the mission, uh, or if they're not available, then Steve and I will go up. But they're to the point now where uh, they have the experience and the confidence, and they can do high-altitude rescues, and they're, they're low-time pilots. They're both below 500 hours total. Uh, if somebody was coming in here off the street, I always say um, we need at least 750 hours uh, background experience in turbine engines plus mountain experience. Uh, well, flying in the mountain, I, I, it's, it takes a lot of time. And for, for our two pilots, uh, junior pilots, Jen and Travis, that's all they've done. They've only done mountain flying. That's all they know. So they've been, uh, become really good at it. I think there'd be a lot of jealous people out there. And again, it's all volunteer, I know, but like that experience, me out of flying with you guys and, and sort of, you know, uh, coattail off, off the huge amount of experience you and, and your other uh, command pilot there have got doing those types of operations. That would be an incredible experience for those guys. Right. And, you know, we're not going to be around forever and in, in so many years we'll be retiring. So we need to pass that on. At some point I'll be looking for uh, somebody to replace me as a chief pilot. So I'd be looking for a seasoned pilot, somebody with, you know, 1,000, 1,500 hours and, and experience in the mountains and NDG experience. So some well-seasoned pilot, uh, and, I'm, and I'm sure there's a lot out there, um, so many to pick from. And I often ask us this, especially, you know, again on the flying side, that, you know, if you sit down with, you know, junior pilots, whether it's uh, the ones that are operating with you or if you go to an airfield and you're sitting, you know, in a crew room or having a coffee with people, is there a couple of, you know, hard-won lessons that you've picked up through your career uh, that, you know, you think, served you really well and that you sort of pass on to others? I, I really emphasize um, lessons learned going into the accident database from NTSB and reviewing aircraft accidents. I think that's really key. We don't want to repeat somebody else's mistake. So that's what I emphasize with our team here. Um, you know, we'll cover accidents and cover safety and crew resource management. And then the big thing, too, is to, um, to do debriefs after every mission, every training mission, every operational mission, do a debrief, and then document the, the operational missions with an after-action report. So once you have that documented, I've got a pretty simple five-paragraph uh, format to fill in. It only takes, uh, you know, a page and do it right away so it's all fresh in your memory. You do the debrief, you write the after-action report. And then you send that out. Uh, since I've been doing them, um, other aviation agencies in the state have followed uh, followed up, and they've also been doing them. And so we pass those around, and we we just freely admit, you know, this is what we did right, and this is what we did wrong, and next time we need to do this, or hey, somebody's got a good idea, we need to try this in training before we do it on an operational mission. So uh, listening to people on the team during debriefs. Uh, being a team member, that's what I emphasize. Everybody on board that aircraft and our five-person team is an air crew member. They're not passengers in the back. They're part of the team. They need to speak up. If they see something unsafe, stay aboard and we'll stop what we're doing, regroup, try to reevaluate, address the problem, and then continue or if we have to, abort the mission. But, uh, yeah, all of those things, those, those, those would be things I'd be telling uh, new pilots. When you do stop flying, Bill, what, what's the thing you think you'll miss the most? Um, definitely working with these people here. That's, that's really the, the reason I come to work because uh, it is unbelievable. You know, I've, I served in the military for 25 years and various you, – you get good camaraderie in the military, but – Coming here in this tight organization and a small group and being able to customize the training uh, from scratch from day one and then bringing up all the, the members and uh, having them go through the training and then hearing things repeated that I 
you know, that I've been preaching for over the years. Just having, I, I think, missing, um, missing that, that, that close teamwork is one thing. And then the other thing would be having that mission. That's a real challenge to go out when you get a call for a rescue. One, you have to get, determine, uh, uh, you know, all the factors, weather, terrain, before you go out and you do the mission. Once you get out there, you find the subject, and now you got the team on board. Everybody looks down and says, okay, what's the best way to get in there, the safest way? And then the team gets inserted, either landing, low hover, or, or hoist insertion. And then we go fly away, and we let them package the patient and call us back. So then you've got to do the extraction, and where do you take them from there? Hand them to an aid car, take them to the hospital. What do you do next? So all of that, you know, that on-the-fly um, uh, determining what uh, avenue uh, of approach you're going to take and determining your uh, making your decisions, your decision-making uh, matrix is all taking place uh, in the air. And I really, I really enjoy that challenge and listening to the team and you get inserted there and listening to them talk. I can't see below me. I've got a camera. Like if I'm not flying, I can look at the, the screen up front and see what's below, but I really enjoy uh, working with the team. Oh, that's great. And Chris, for anyone else who's in the, the sort of north of Seattle area with those uh, EMT skills or, you know, rescue type work, uh, who, you know, have thought about coming along and, and checking it out, what would you say to uh, to them to, to get them in? No, that's like, it's like trying to ask, you know, who do you want to be your brother or sister, right? It's, uh, it's you know, you want people that, that bring a certain skill set to the table, like Bill said, being able to, to think and adapt on the fly um, and think on your feet is really important. I think having a solid backcountry skill set is really important, being able to know that, you know, you can take care of yourself and be uh, inserted by the helicopter anywhere in the county, any time of day, in any conditions is kind of a base level requirement so that you're able to do that. I think communication is huge, being able to uh, communicate what you're seeing clearly, communicate what you're thinking clearly, being able to agree or disagree is all, you know, all, all super important. And being able to do that in, in a meaningful and concise way is, is, is pretty critical on the team. And like, you know, like any, like any tight knit team or family, there, there's, there's, there's always some friction here and there and being able to figure out how to move past that and move forward is always super important. And I think that that's something we're all, we're all pretty skilled at and then we work hard to, to maintain. Well, brilliant, guys. Well, look, thank you so much for letting us all sort of come inside and have a, a bit of a look around the organization, the operations that you guys do and, and sharing a bit about that. Uh, obviously, there's a website and, and Facebook. Uh, do you want to share those details so people can come and find out a little bit more about you? Yeah, the website is uh, helicopterrescue.org. Um, and then on Facebook, uh, you can look up the Snohomish County Helicopter Rescue Team pretty easy to find as well uh yeah uh thanks for uh thanks for hosting us we, we always love talking about our program thanks a lot both of you thank you and we'll look forward to seeing photos and uh and following the missions as you guys go ahead okay we'll be busy this summer again as usual as chris said you can see a heap more videos and photos of their work online i'll put a few of those up on the the blog post that goes along with this episode at rotarywingshow.com. But check them out on Facebook by searching for Helicopter Rescue Team and you know jump on, make some comments and, and let them know that you heard them here and uh, that you're interested in, in what they're doing and that type of work. It's, a, again, some great uh, photos and content that they've got up there. I think they've also got one of the coolest website addresses going around with helicopterrescue.org. If you're outside the US and you try and get to the website, you may not be able to reach it. It looks like they've got some kind of uh, country uh, filtering going on there. So if you, you see a, a strange page, that's what's going on. Again, a big thank you and a shout out to Heath, especially, but also Peter, Tony, Kevin, and Jason for your support with chipping in towards the, the hosting and the bandwidth costs of these episodes. If you're listening to these episodes and you get some value from them and, and look, you know, if we caught up in person, you'd be happy to uh, possibly, you know, shout me a coffee, then consider, you know, a couple of dollars via patreon.com or rotarywingshow.com forward slash support just uh, helps cover some of those bills 
So obviously not uh, compulsory. You know, I learn as much doing these uh, and get a lot out of it. Uh, so I'll be doing them for a while yet. But it does just help with the out-of-pocket expenses and, and especially, possibly most importantly, is it keeps my, my wife on side. Reviews on iTunes are also super helpful to me that uh, you, know, you find all the stuff worthwhile uh, listening to. A few things in the pipeline. I'm still trying to get a, a date to record about the Falkland War uh, helicopter operations. There we've got a turbine engine discussion coming up. I know that from feedback there's a few Jocko Willink uh, fans out there. So I'm hoping to record a discussion with another local pilot here about how the points in Jocko's book, Extreme Ownership, translate across to the aviation world. Especially if you have any thoughts on that last one that you want to contribute to that episode, or if you want to drop me a line on anything in particular, you can get hold of me at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. Thanks for tuning in again and chat to you soon.